Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. On today's episode, I'm talking to practical science expert Simon Quinnell, an enthusiastic educator who works for STEM learning. Simon has had experience in schools and colleges and is currently the curriculum lead for the University of York's Science PGCE course. He worked for STEM Learning as part of the team that set up the National Science Learning Centre and was also the chair of the ASE during 2021. He is passionate about supporting school science experiments and in particular science technicians, which as you all know are the bedrock of any successful science department. Simon's experience has enabled him to help science educators fulfil their CPD needs, which ultimately leads to changes in school practice on the ground and ultimately improving student engagement. I think you'll find our conversation informative and engaging. So without further ado, let's hear Simon's view from the lab. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Nice to see you today. Hi, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. It's not a problem. I always like chatting to people from York. I've, I've chatted to a few people from the old uh, the STEM Centre at York, so it's nice to get a, yes, yeah. another one from your, your esteemed uh, team. Um, let's get started with a bit of background from you, because I always like to find out about a bit of kind of uh, information, back information about what, what the guests feel about science. You know, what was it that really kind mm. of got them into science? Was it their natural interest? Were they inspired uh, either by maybe a teacher, maybe a parent? Um, when you're thinking back to maybe in primary school days, what, what do you think about science and why do you why do you feel like you really got um, got excited about science when you were younger? Um, to be honest, I think it's all family um, for me, uh, a bit of primary school and what we did there. Um, but um, I suppose breaking down science is biology. That's my real first passion. I've, I'm interested in all science um, and I've taught all three um, subjects at some point and trained the, um, other people in them. But biology was my first love and it always has been. Um, and I think that does come from family. So um, thinking back when my dad used to take us out on local countryside walks um, in Essex, um, he was always turning over rocks and bits of wood and um, cardboard, metal, anything we could find, we would turn it over to have a look what was there. So voles, mice, grass, snakes, adders, anything and everything we saw as children. And that sort of interest in the natural world, in natural history, is really what sparked everything else off. Um, so at that point, I think even as a young child, I wanted to be a vet or a zookeeper or working with animals in some way, wildlife management, etc. Um, but it came from that. It came from trips to the Natural History Museum. We used to go there every year and um, next door to the Science Museum where you could visit both through the tunnel um, that connected them. Um, and I think all those experiences sort of built up bird watching with my dad and the grandparents. Um, and I think that's what got me, got it, me into it more than anything else. Okay. So and when was your, uh, was your dad in how to have a scientific career? Or was it just natural interest yeah. for him? Was it his kind of, um, a uh, bit of both actually. So he, yeah, he worked for a pharmaceutical company. Um, so he was a chemical, um, operator. I think the job title was, which is basically mixing all the chemicals together to make whatever pharmaceutical the company was doing at the time. Um, so he had that sort of science ish background. Um, but as a child, he also used to have his own sort of I'm not sure if this would be politically correct now, um, but back in the 50s, he had his own menagerie in the garden of wildlife that he'd rescued. So he had a pet jackdaw and um, various snakes and stuff that he used to keep in the back garden, which actually backed onto um, one of the local nature reserves. Okay, so you must have, uh, uh, you must have a lot of your friends might have enjoyed coming around to see the the, uh, the world of wonderful uh, animals well, in your garden, I assume. He did, yes, <laughs> when he was oh. a child. And when we were growing up, I think the the bravest we have ever got was having um, frogs in the fish tank. Oh, okay. um, so okay. we um, got some tadpoles and we, we grew them on in the um, fish tank before letting them go. 
Right, okay. And how did you find, what was your kind of school experience in senior school like? Was it, um, you know, what kind of school did you go to? Was it uh, very austere? Was it quite um, uh, free and easy? How, how was your education in science in secondary? Um, good, actually. Um, it's very interesting. So um, I went to a, a, a standard um, comprehensive, it was a, a Catholic school, um, and um, all boys, and then we amalgamated with a local Catholic girls school, which was interesting. Um, okay. But I had very good science teachers that were very interesting. Um, I remember one of our science teachers had lost a thumb in a, a science explosion at some point in right. um, a lesson. So that sort of gives you the sort of the level of um, practical expertise and what they were trying to do. Um, and even in my GCSE year, I think we, there was some sort of shortage going on because I think we had three or four teachers throughout our GCSEs for science. Um, but one of them um, brought in a, um, and I can really remember this really clearly, a cow's pluck. So the heart and lungs and everything is still combined. And you do that on a smaller scale with a, um, a lambs or a pigs now. Yeah. But he bought in a cow's one. It was absolutely massive. And it just blew everybody's mind. Um, the size of this, and he blew it up with a bellows and everything else. And it was things like that, really sort of um, big demonstrations, experiments, the things you sort of remember. And um, But also good teachers that um, taught in a very good sequence um, of learning. Yeah, it's a really kind of positive experience and you know, yeah, yeah. Helps you to get your hands on um, as you do now your, your your own work in practical that sounds really mm. good and inspiring I guess so did you um, for your uni, university course did you go down the I guess you went down the biology route and did something specific for biology yes. what did you choose in the end? Yeah so I did a, a degree in wildlife conservation and ecology. Okay um, very yeah. Um, and, and yeah and that was because I wanted to be out there in the field and um, looking at <laughs> fluffy animals, all that sort of um, conservation, um, wildlife management, um, and looking at different um, subjects along um, those lines. So kind of a really enjoyable course, and I guess it was uh, yeah. three or four years of, um, you know, uh, you look back fondly on, I guess. Yes, yeah, lots of nice field trips, looking at wetlands particularly, um, did a whole um, term on wetland management. Um, we did um, insect collections, dissections, diagnostic work, um, chemical chemistry um, sort of linked to the environment. Um, even um, and some really interesting um, terms and um, units on um, the human impact, so society's impact on um, the environment um, throughout history, for instance, which were all really interesting. And you moved on, say, I did your science degree, and then you did you decide to get you went quite early into supporting kind of science education quite early on in your career, and you you became a technician. Was that yeah. in the university? Was it? Did you go to a no, college? How did that, that was in a school? Yes, yeah, so that was in a school. Um, so, school. yeah, I think when I left the university, in my head, I wanted to be a teacher, so I was thinking about doing a PGCE. Um, and even um, at sixth form, I was part of a. Um, a sort of mini course within our A-levels um, for education. So we uh, went, spent an afternoon every week in a primary school okay. um, acting as a TA and taking lessons occasionally and doing some support. And we did some project work along those lines. And I think that's what I always wanted to get into at some point, education, whether that was sort of the informal sector um, and looking at ecology and education and doing sort of like a, you know, um, environment education officer um, for an environmental charity or a wildlife area, um, or going into teaching. But in the end, I, I think I sort of, after university, didn't want to necessarily go straight into education again. So I worked as a science technician, um, moving up to um, become a senior technician um, in the same school over a period of uh, a couple of years. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, just the, um, sort of working with um, classes and teachers and demonstrations. And I think throughout the time there, I ended up becoming 
one of the te one of those technicians that actually enjoys being in the classroom as well, helping out and supporting, helping with demonstrations, doing sort of mini lectures and bits and pieces. So I, there was always that educational side to it. Um, but also the, just the opportunity to learn about um, science practical work from the other side, preparation, um, creating things, maintaining things, um, coming up with new ideas and new practicals and um, new experiments, etc. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a great um, apprenticeship in a sense to, to your kind of when you move on to science teaching, because mm. I think a lot of teachers, me included, when I taught, I, in a sense, didn't know uh, the problems and the challenges maybe technicians had when I put in a kind of scrappy order with this, this and this on it and um, expect something different to come out. Whereas I think maybe if you, I guess if you had your experience with technicians, when you went to the other side of the uh, the door, uh, as it, so to speak, the locked door with the warning signs, um, did that help you kind of uh, have a better relationship, so to speak, uh, in terms of a good working relationship with your technicians and, and being uh, giving them good instructions and, and getting what you needed and and so the whole thing kind of beautifully uh coalesced yes. into lessons. i think so okay. um <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure so the last technicians i i worked with at stem learning when i was a um professional development leader there um i'm not sure they would necessarily agree that my requisitions were any better than anybody else's okay um and i think uh, you can um I, I, there's a, a quite a common term you know um poachers turned gamekeepers yeah um and i think when you when you cross over you've got to be careful not to be be that sort of um next level on and thinking people because you do the job you sort mm. of can give them less instructions because you think oh well actually i know what that means it doesn't necessarily mean somebody else knows what that means on that requisition yeah. so you do have to be careful um but it, i think it gave me an insight about how long things take and how much time it takes to prepare certain things in certain ways. So if you want a class set and you want um, individual pairs doing something, that takes a lot of time to prepare. If you want microbiology plates um, for a microbiology experiment, that's you can't give that in as a late requisition. Not that you should do late requisitions anyway, course, but that's weeks and well, that can be weeks and weeks of preparation of getting the stuff in, um, making sure the plates are ready, making sure the bacteria is grown. Um, and particularly for biology, you do realize actually that sometimes some of the practicals you ask for have a very long lead in time of purchasing or growing and um, yeah. getting things um, for the lesson. Yeah, and I was thinking that, um, I guess, well, that also must have been helpful in terms of, I think, when uh, you, you order certain uh, types of equipment or certain practicals, I guess, and um, you know that, I guess, from your technician point of view, what if you like the clear up time is of certain practicals versus others and i was thinking you know biology chemistry tend to be a bit kind of messier i guess physics yeah, maybe <laughs> a few bits of equipment and not too yeah. not too bad other than the all the wires getting tangled etc yeah, i was about to say tidying um, the wires at the end tidying wires, you know, that's always a good activity for someone who's doing extra homework yeah. uh, but and, um, and i think that's a really good point because i think it does as a being a technician beforehand um means you know what the equipment is you know how to use it you know what it does and what it doesn't do um and it just gives you a better idea of how to handle things within a lesson what um health and safety things might also um, arise especially if you're a non-specialist um having been a technician and having prepped physics practicals gave me a better understanding of running physics practicals and what i would be expected to show um students at some point so did you um do you feel a bit more when you started your teacher training course did you feel a bit more obviously you must have had a bit more confident on that side of things you, you know about the school environment when they placed you in a school yeah. um i guess that that kind of gave you a little bit of a head start and you, and that side of the job was you know something that was easier for you i guess was yeah it? yeah and i wasn't um I, I don't think i was scared of doing practical work okay which so i think you know, some trainees can be yes of course yeah and you must i know in your role now you you, you support them in that i mean 
so you, you talked for that for a little while um you taught biology i'm assuming bi biology and chemistry you yes all, all across the sciences well um, so i ended up um going into sixth form college quite early on and finishing my training there um and i was also a technician at the same time so i was doing two jobs for a little while and then got more into um teaching um at the sixth form college so there it was mostly biology so i ended up teaching um gcse biology a level biology um btex and applied science which was a bit more of a spread yeah. um and doing a little bit of other subjects on the side but mostly biology because i think sixth form colleges um like independent schools are one of the few places where you can get away with being a specialist for most of the things that you do um, and I actually found that I ended up doing more physics and chemistry when I, I ended up going into CPD development um, and running courses um, more than actually doing it with students, I think, in the beginning. So I ended up having to learn more as my career went on, um, as I started doing more physics and chemistry courses for technicians and teachers um, at the National Science Learning Centre. So how did that happen? So you were teaching at college, um, obviously a bit, of a bit of a move into universities. Was that just a kind of uh, opportunity that came up or, or were yeah. you planning to kind of move into the training? No, no. I, I think in my head when I was at the sixth form college, I thought, Do you know what, this would be, I'd be happy to stay there for the rest of my career um, or maybe move. To, and I quite like the sector and I like the way things work there. Um, and this was in the east end of London, so it was quite uh, an interesting um, area to work in. Yeah. with really interesting students that needed um, a lot of support, um, came from very deprived backgrounds, um, and it was um, a really good place to work and um, teach in. Very, very, very rewarding, really. Um, but it came about, uh, I was at an, um, an Association for Science Education annual conference, which is the biggest um, subject specialist conference for science um, in the country. A um, bit of plug for the ASC as a past chair of the association. And it was there, I was um, walking around with our senior technician from the college and we were talking to the um, guys at Cleeps um, on their stand and they were telling us about this new um, organisation that was being um, started in York, the National Science Learning Centre, mm. and they were looking for a senior technician. And I thought, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting because although I've, I've stopped being a technician really and was doing lecturing and teaching um i thought oh that'd be interesting so i kept an eye out for it and when it came up it came up with a, a sort of a bit of cpd in there as well about developing courses for technicians and helping with other things as well and i thought well that's might be interesting so um i went for the job thinking great new start moving out of london um, doing a bit of cpd but also setting up labs for the first time in a really big scale on a national program and everything else and luckily got the job um and even within the first year because i had that teaching background as well as a technician background um it became really evident that actually i was the person to run the technicians program um and do some of the practical programs um alongside that as well for teachers and technicians so you very much started kind of supporting the technicians before you started doing more kind of teacher-based um, activities and support. It was a bit of both. A bit of both, really, but mostly. So the technicians program became my thing to run, as well as the um, labs and the technician team um, and the practical side of things. And then I started running sessions on the teachers program, um, doing sort of more practical work sessions. So I think the first thing I did was a demonstrations course um, with one of the colleagues there um, and then did, did both of those things. So training teachers and technicians. Um, at the same time, but having a more of a focus on the technicians program. 
Okay, and um, when you're um, when you've got your new recruits for your science, uh, you know, prospective science teachers each year, I guess things do change as, as years go by, and some cohorts are, are better at one thing than another. But um, are, there, are there things that tend to have come up quite a lot that, that, that are kind of classic school science experiments, but often people have forgotten about them or maybe just haven't done them for a long time? Are there any, you know, what are the, what are the main ones that people tend to find a bit more challenging than the others? Is there any that kind of um, uh, pop out in your mind? Well, in terms of practical work, I think there's certain things that are more complicated than others um, when it comes to certain practicals. Um, for me, I think it's when you're, it, it's about specialisms in a way, um, that I think if you're a specialist in one subject and not another, therefore they end up, those practicals can sometimes be more challenging because you're not um, sort of used to the equipment um, and you don't know necessarily what things do without practicing and trialing things out. So therefore, Things like circuits, which is really simple for a physics teacher, might not necessarily be as simple for a chemistry or biology teacher. And microbiology, whilst maybe simple for a biologist to do, sometimes I'll add, I'll come back to that, again, might not be for a chemist or a physicist. And when you come to the, some of the big chemistry demonstrations, that just scares everybody. Um, but I think even with biologists, it's quite interesting that because biology is such a broad um, umbrella term, I think, for lots of different specialisms within that. So you can have somebody going and coming in with a biology degree um, into teaching um, that has nothing to do with microbiology whatsoever. Um, and so, so for an, an ecologist might not necessarily have done any microbiology. Um, a geneticist may not have done. So you're finding that um, people don't have the experiences. And if they've not had those experiences in school as well, because practical work hasn't been done very well in their own um, schooling um, for themselves, then they do really struggle um, with um, some of the practicals. And it can be as simple as um, we had a trainee a couple of years ago um, who hadn't used a microscope before, a biology trainee, and hadn't used a microscope in either the degree course um, or at A-level as well. And it was just... Yeah very interesting because you wouldn't expect that but it can be very simple so even the most simplest of practicals you can't um, guarantee that your trainees would have seen those before yeah and i guess the um the old adage in the sense that, that perhaps sometimes the, the things we think we're good at or we've done before perhaps we we don't always explain as well because we know it so well and perhaps we miss out some of the steps mm. that are almost intuitive to us but when yeah. we're talking to somebody else like a pupils or um that uh, i guess some specialists maybe that is a problem and they skip over too many steps and 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 they um and uh, makes it more difficult to people to follow because because they have got that kind of expert knowledge that they don't think mm. needs to be explained um i guess you must see that as well in in, in some of the recruits yes yeah i think um uh, pitching and instructions can be a bit of a problem so i think we do sometimes see trainees that pitch too high and end up teaching year sevens um what is um and in fact a a degree subject or a, an A-level um, level. So instead of sort of like paring it down and thinking about what they need to be telling them and what's the most important facts, they end up telling them things that they would normally get at GCSE or A-level. So bringing down their subject specialism is quite important because they do sometimes go a little bit over a trainee's heads and have to think about well, actually what's in the curriculum at that point and what they need to tell them to then build up to the next point to the next point um, as they go and thinking about like a spiral curriculum. Um, so pitch can be an issue. And you're right, I think also instructions, sometimes trainees and um, anybody really can sometimes assume prior knowledge is there when it's not. So it's finding out what the prior knowledge is and how do we build on it? And actually in terms of our instructions for practical work, do they know, have they done something similar in the past? 
um, and are they aware of how to use the equipment and um, what else um, is involved in the practical um, and practical progression is something that I think is very important um, now we have the required practicals for instance um, so making sure um, students um, understand how to use the burette before they end up doing the, the required practicals on titrations um, and making sure there's that practical progression not only in knowledge but also in skills and manipulation of um, the equipment they're going to see. And what do you think? Think, think about it as core practicals. I was, I was just wondering your, what you thought was the most, um, which one's got the most uh, different types of skills within a core practice, GCSE? What, is, there, is there one that kind of thinks, well, there's actually quite a lot going on in that practical and there might be, you know, 10, 15 things that somebody needs to be able to master to be able to do it. Is there one that kind of pops out of your head that thinks, Mm, that's quite challenging for other people to explain and probably obviously students to do is there one that, that oh. seems more difficult than others you think or that, that's interesting because i think it's um i think the um the required practicals have all been chosen because they are quite not simple practicals but they are quite basic in what you need to do and actually the equipment you need to use so every school should have been able to um do them yeah um i think there are um, the chemistry ones, um, there's a couple like the testing of ions, which actually has um, quite a few complex um, different stages to it. So thinking about, um, I think off the top of my head, um, there's melting, um, sorry, um, flame tests um, and looking at colours. Um, there's um, testing different solutions together and looking at precipitation. So there's a couple of different mini practicals within that, looking at the different ions um, that can be produced and tested. Um, with biology, I think the microbiology practicals in both the GCSE and A-level are probably the more complex where students have to have very good aseptic techniques to get very good results. Um, and I think both those, um, and looking at zones of inhibition, for instance, they're both quite um, hard skill sets to get going and actually thinking about how you create aseptic techniques and how you train students on aseptic techniques, especially if you're a non-specialist. Um, and with physics, I think um, there's um, things like the resistance of wires um, and capacitors um, and the RF uh, and some of the value ones, they can be a bit more tricky as well. And things like um, um, ripple tanks, for instance, trying to get a ripple tank to do what it is and measuring the waves, for instance, that can also be quite difficult and having the equipment to do that as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I can definitely, I definitely concur with the, the ripple tanks and be able to get, you know, some, some are easier to get reasonable results from the others, aren't they? And, and some of them are, I take a lot of uh, talk fiddling about with, which sometimes yes, yes, always, yeah. we always have um, the time or a technician maybe doesn't have the time. No, no, and I, I, would, I would agree with that because I had to set up. Um, so we haven't had a technician for our PGC um, area for a, for a little while. Um, and we were doing the core practicals for physics um, in June. So we had all the trainees back on campus again, which is really nice. Um, seeing them face to face again. And I had to set up um, our ripple tank, which I think is from the 19... Well, I'm going to assume the 1950s or 60s. So it was quite a, a good couple of hours just trying to get it to work. And uh, thinking about, it was talking about a lot of, of hands-on practical work, which is, which is a key part of science. It's why a lot of students come in to lessons. Often they say to me, you know, are we doing a practical? It's the first question they ask you is they come in the, come in the room. Yeah. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are on some of the new ways of viewing practicals, things like simulated practicals, digital practicals, compared to the real thing. Have you got any kind of views on the balance of those, whether we should be doing them at all, whether we should be doing a few of them? Is there any advantages uh, to these simulated practicals? I, I think it depends on what you want to get in terms of an outcome. Um, I, you should always relate to outcomes, really. So whatever the outcome for the practical you want the students to do, if you can do that through a, um, a simulation, whether that's digital or a model or something like that, 
um, then it's worth giving it a try as long as you get the same outcomes. But of course, if those outcomes are skills related, um, then you might lose that by doing a digital one. So I think there's a time and a place for them. But I think it's what outcomes do you want to get? And I think sometimes in science practical work, we look at the outcomes about knowledge and therefore will they be able to pass a, a an exam or a test at the end of um, the, the course, GCSE for instance. Um, but sometimes we forget actually sometimes these are skills things and we might want a skills outcome that actually being able to do a process and evaluate that process and think about and reflect on that is just as important as the knowledge learned about the topic or the theory of the science behind it. Um, so it's to do with outcomes and also um, whether or not actually it's a good I've yet to see that many really good digital um, versions of practicals beyond actually um, there used to be a really nice photosynthesis one okay. where you could count bubbles and vary the lights. Um, the, um, there's some really good physics um, models, um, not necessarily sort of virtual practicals, but those physics models um, mm. which are all online and I can't remember what the website is, but you might remember it as well. And where you can see sort of simulations of, um, molecules and different um, instruments on screen from the states I think it is um, some things like that can be really really useful but I think it's thinking about your outcomes and what you want to achieve from it yeah and I guess the um, I suppose in terms of reinforcement in a sense some of those simulations might be useful if you've done them in the lab and maybe you need just a reminder about the the key concepts yeah, yeah. if you're looking at data perhaps maybe would you think that's as an element of usefulness there I think so. Collecting data, so things like the photosynthesis, if your pond weed isn't working particularly well, you can set up the practical, but you're not necessarily going to get any results. But mm -hmm. if there's a way you can sort of set it up and then realise actually on reflection that this practical isn't going to give us the data we need to really think about this and um, embed it, um, then actually is there a digital follow up where we can do it on there instead and um, get some data from that as long as it sort of models the same sort of um, practical that you were trying to do. So I think it's a really good backup if things don't necessarily work, um, particularly if it's a practical that, like photosynthesis, it's in the lap of the gods sometimes when you're trying to count bubbles from pondweed. Yeah, it was a bit, yeah, it was a bit, being a bit variable and wet. sometimes you have to do the winter for some reason or something and it wasn't. Yes, yeah, biology, yeah, for some reason biology is always timetabled in the winter when nothing <laughs> works. Yeah, yeah, I know. So it's, um, I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of challenges there and I was going to ask you about, you must have seen quite a lot of, um, different layouts of labs so I was quite I'm quite interested in terms of what the perfect if that is, is that if, if it's impossible lab layout is for kind of school-aged children because I think there's always this this um challenge between the kind of theory element of um what yes. we've got to do as science teachers and the practical element and sometimes like literally ge geography and the, and the classroom furniture sometimes literally gets in the way of doing that well do you, is there yes. a particular layout you would like you know in, in an ideal world and you had I don't know, hundred thousand pounds to count your your a school lab. <laughs> would there be a particular geography or where you would alter it? What were your thoughts on, yeah. on that? Well, I would say just having um, recently um, project managed a lab, um, a new education science lab at the university. Um, a hundred thousand doesn't go as far as like you used to. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> enough money. Um, it's quite interesting, but it's it's a really nice space, so it has had a bit of money spent on it. But um, do you mean in an ideal world, I think the um, the layout you would have if you if you could have sort of a I don't know a hundred odd square meters of um, space um, then for sort of a, an average class of 30 we'll stick with 30 um, 
then having a sort of theory space and a practical space in the same room would be ideal. Yeah. Um, so you can have sort of normal benches, normal tables at the front, which you can move around in groups or have in rows or clusters or a horseshoe or however you want to have them, depending on what you want to do in that lesson, um, would be brilliant. And then having fixed benches with water, gas, electricity at the back for practical work um, would be ideal. Um, unfortunately, um, when it comes to cost and space and footprints of schools, that's often not the case. And so generally, you're often looking at lab spaces between 80 and 100 square meters, um, which it, I mean is below the recommended amount um, in the old um, DFE's building bulletin, mm. um, which should be about 90 to 100 um, for that sort of average class size of 30. Um, and so you have to make a choice between a flexible space that is good for theory and okay for practical or a more fixed space which is far better for practical in terms of safety and everything else but limits you in terms of theory and it's trying to work out what's best for the um the school and the students and the amount of practical work you're planning to do as well and i think there's a lot of debate between the two and for me what i've tended to go for is to have um either services around the side so sinks and gas and electricity around the side but that has its own problems with backs to you when they're doing practical work and everything else um, and then freeing up the center area for movable tables or having a sort of column pod unit where you might have a, a single sort of 50 by 50 um, tower um, which has gas water and electricity on but all the other tables in the room are flexible so you can still have them in groups or have them in a horseshoe around the pods but it still gives you that sort of fixed lab but also flexible lab for um, other bits and pieces as well um, yeah, I think, but i, I don't think there's a perfect there is not a perfect um solution unless you have the money or the space to do it yeah i was thinking that if it might in the ideal world i would have kind of almost like lectures lectures style chairs that come up from the floor and then when the <laughs> practical started i'd have the pods come down from the ceiling uh, for people to, to move around because i get what you mean about um the difficulty, especially not so much the sixth form, but 11, 16 um, environments where you've got yes, kids yeah. with their back to you. You know, it's practical because all, all the gas taps are on the side, but then it's a safety issue. You can't, you know, keep an eye on yeah, what's, what's, and uh, what's going on. Yeah, and the windows, so. you can't see the gas taps. But then yeah. again, there's an argument, actually, do you need gas? Do we need gas in practical work? If there's, I've been signed to use um, sort of mini portable Bunsen's, which are, um, Cleeps have um, got in one of their guides. Um, yeah. So we don't have gas in our PGC lab anymore. So we use those for microbiology and other things. We have heating mantles and hot plates if you want to heat anything up. Um, but gas is a much, I mean, if you've got gas thin there, then buttons are cheaper. But um, having gas often is the limiting factor to having real flexible spaces um, around because sinks and electricity on the side aren't too much of a problem. Yeah. Um, and the other thing we've also gone for in our new PGC lab is actually drop down um, power cubes. Um, so on okay. the ceiling, we have this sort of little um, yellow and black power cubes that have four sockets on. Mm -hmm. And when we're doing practical work, we've got microscopes out of power packs. You just pull down the cubes um, and they sort of stop where they are. And then you plug into that. And at the end of the practical, you push them back up and then off they go into the ceiling. Yeah, that sounds close. That sounds close to my dream dream lab that does. Yeah, I definitely yeah, think. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you can. Yeah, almost if th those, those functional bits like the plugs, like the um, like the gas taps, etc., which in a sense, get you know kids get distracted by those things with mm, fiddling them yeah. or what have you in a sense if you did have some kind of automation or just something that was just kept them away for different parts of that and then they were released if you like for when the practice yeah, was yeah. happening that would be kind of a good um yeah. good compromise perhaps yeah and i've seen labs with um sort of side stations where the um 
there's a sort of gas and electricity box um, around the room. And actually, when you want to be practical, you take the tables and just move them over to the sockets. They're not sort of then the students aren't facing the wall, but they're okay. still on that table. But the table sort of docks into sort of a side station where the sort of gas taps and plug sockets and they might have a sink um, along the side um, work as well. And um, the other thing in our um, new lab is our tables have been designed so they have wheels at one end. So you can pick them up from the other end and actually just move them across quite easily rather, rather than having to pick them up and move them around. So they're quite flexible. But when they're down, the wheels pop back up so they become very stable. Okay, that sounds um, sounds like a, definitely um, kind of a, an improvement for the for the future. I mean, I guess yeah. you, you kind of um, you know in your job you, you do see a lot of different schools, a lot of different colleges. Um, are there any things when you think about the schools that perhaps you think um, are maybe not resourced very well for science equipment? Is there things that they tend to be missing, or is it just the basics they haven't got, like enough test tubes or enough bachelors, or, or yeah. is it more the, the bigger items that they haven't got? It's a real mixture, I think. Um, so. Um, having going into schools um, delivering CPD but also going in and observing trainees etc in um, lessons you do notice then and, and talking to technicians actually so I'm on a um, I still um, do lots of technician um, CPD through ASC and CLEPS as well um, and you find that it's a real mixed thing in terms of science budget so it can be just glassware you find te um, technicians having to clean out test tubes that really you would I mean they're spending half an hour cleaning out test tubes yeah. that really should just be thrown away um, after certain practicals because there's no test tubes left. Um, so it can be just a simple thing of a glassware and the resources, the chemicals, because chemicals are still quite expensive. Um, and then in terms of bigger items, it's um, often the things like power packs and microscopes, some of the big items that you need class sets of, they're struggling for. Mm. Um, so if you think um, an average power pack, a couple of hundred quid, the average um, microscope, same sort of cost um, for school with a thousand pound budget for the year for practical work to, to get in a couple of microscopes and a couple of power packs to replace things that have been broken, wipes the budget out. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of old equipment. There's a lot of sort of make do and mend. Um, there's a lot of, I would say one thing that sort of, um, for the student experience is that a lot of students are using equipment that is 30, 40 years old. Um, and then doesn't bear any relation to the sort of equipment they end up using at university or in industry or in um, if they are going to a science related or STEM related career um, because schools are so far behind. And in fact, that's the sort of argument for Bunsen burners. When you think actually when you look at university labs, for instance, there's hardly any Bunsen burners nowadays. They don't really use them. Um, it's only schools seem to be the sole market for Bunsen burners in the country. Um, but there is that sort of, um, I think there's a lack of budget, there's a lack of equipment, um, and there's a lack of the sort of standard stuff that you, like a, a class set of A-level microscopes for students to be able to do mitos the mitosis practical. In mm. some schools, that isn't possible when they're using um, old um, microscopes that still need lamps and only don't have immersion oil lenses and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think that in a sense, uh, that, that Bunsen question is a key one. It's the kind of thing that almost every parent and every child expects to see in a science lab but actually is it necessary and you know a lot of those experiments um that you do as a science teacher i think yeah actually what would be better is a efficient as long as it was safe hot plate to do a lot of those kind of physics experiments or even chemistry experiments i know some of them you can't you have to do the bunts like flame tests. yes yeah that. yeah then that's the thing yeah there's you can't it's one of the things that you can't get rid of bunsen's um 
but you could replace them with um, other alternatives or think about where your gas taps are. But actually, it's worth thinking about. I mean, the, the problem is, is if you took Bunsen burners away, then that would automatically limit you to certain practicals. There would be certain things you would no longer do or wouldn't be able to do. Um, I'm sort of thinking if I, um, in my new lab, one thing I can't do is the methane bubbles demonstration yeah, um, yeah. because we don't have gas taps and we can't, uh, if you don't have gas taps, you can't do that demonstration, which is a, well, it's just a shame because it's one of my favorite ones. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's thinking about what practicals do you want to do and not limiting um, the practicals you might do because I think it, some teachers don't really like doing practical work. Some teachers don't think practical work does as much as it, um, other people do. Some yeah. people like me love doing practical work and think it's really useful as long as there's good outcomes from that and you can, there's a real reason for doing it and doing it in the way you um, think will match the outcomes for your um, learners. Definitely. I mean, you've had a great, a great kind of experience. You've been a technician, you've been a uh, lecturer, you've been a teacher, you've trained teachers, you've trained technicians. So kind of look, looking forward to next maybe five, ten years in science education. Are there things you think we should be doing that we're not doing at the moment that perhaps may, or maybe we need a bit more emphasis on as we're moving through maybe post-pandemic and uh, the rest of it? What would you like to see change in science education in that 11 to 18 um, kind of age group? That's a really big question. Um, or is it okay? <laughs> well, yeah, yes, it's a good question. Um, but I'm sort of thinking now my head's running through about 20 different answers. Um, and I think there's there's certain things that annoy me um, in science education in schools. One of the biggest things that annoy me are how technicians are treated, not necessarily by their departments and not necessarily always by their schools, but technicians are... Um, Often, I mean, without a technician, you wouldn't be able to do practical work and you wouldn't have labs being serviced and looked after. The health and safety wouldn't be there. And technicians are often instrumental in training new teachers. So if you're an early career teacher, often the technician is the person you go to for help and support in terms of practical work. So if we ever want to keep our practical work elements, we need to really invest in our technician workforce. And that hasn't happened really ever. Um, so technicians are often on salary. The, the technician um, salary um, you know, on average, um, in the last in, in the Royal Society of Chemistry's um, last report they did um, a couple of years ago, well, last year actually, just before the pandemic, showed that in real terms the technician um, salary since 2012 um, for those that responded has actually gone down slightly or hasn't changed at all. Um, and I think that's really um, instrumental in actually the fact that we don't get technicians staying as long, we don't get the right people in the job um, with the right expertise. And I think investing in technicians and investing in our practical work is something that I think in, in, in terms of the labs and um, the equipment are two things I think go hand in hand and we need to look at. And I would like to see also on top with the technician part of it, um, some sort of national qualification for science technicians in schools because there isn't one. Um, no. At the moment, um, a technician does, hasn't, doesn't need any prior, you don't need uh, any prior training for somebody to walk into a science department um, and start managing the technical service. So that's looking after all the chemicals, making sure they're secure, all the maintenance, all the checks, um, all the health and safety information, talking to teachers about that as well. There is no training of, at all available for them beforehand or to say that, or, or even afterwards to say, do you know what, they've now got a qualification, we can let them loose in the chemical store. So you have technicians with no training looking at bromine and conch acids and alkali metals and radioactives. Um, microbiology, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's something that really needs to be looked at. And I think if you had a national qualification system, that might also lead to better professionalism in the future. So that's the sort of technician side of it. 
Um, with um, early career teachers, I think it's time um, and subject specialist support for non-specialists. So it's being able to um, teach outside of your specialism with confidence yeah. um, and making sure that there is some support network either in the school or in the mat chain or locally or nationally um, that gives um, early career teachers a bit more support teaching outside of their specialism because I think to be really effective you have to have the confidence that what you're teaching is the right thing that you understand the misconceptions that you understand the scaffolding that students might need to learn more money to have in terms of prior knowledge and support to be able to understand the topic that you're teaching um, and I think there isn't enough subject specialist stuff out there that's freely accessible for everyone um, because there are courses STEM learning, um, ASC, the learned societies, um, the exam boards um, all have things there but I don't know necessarily if people have, often have the opportunity to go on external CPD to improve their subject knowledge and how um, and the pedagogy behind teaching that subject knowledge um, to students is there. So yeah, that's sort of, oh, sorry. I was going to say, as you, as you say, even within specialisms, I think there's things that are blind spots between, you know, if you're a graduate of that, so even if that, you've yeah. done a physics degree, perhaps it might be very specific about, um, uh, you know, electronics or it might be, you know, optics. You may have forgotten about how black holes form yeah, and, yeah. and the rest of it. So um, there's definitely um, scope for both those supporting of, yeah. support of technicians, it, making that, um, uh, uh, you know, important kind of uh, entry because it seems crazy, doesn't it, to have uh, somebody come into to a lab with those those chemicals you mentioned and, and not necessarily having no. to pass any kind of um, uh, competency in, in using those, which seems mad, doesn't it, really? It does, um, it does, yeah. I think it does, yeah. 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 So, um, and with the subjects, yeah, I think with the subject specialism um, route, I think you're right. There's, it's interesting that even um, trainees going through and doing a subject knowledge enhancement, you mm. can't do a subject knowledge enhancement in your own subject. Um, so in in um, biology or physics or chemistry, then in the individual PGCs, mm. um, you can't necessarily do your subject enhancement in your. Well, actually, sorry, that's wrong. So getting that around the wrong way actually you can do your subject enhancement in your own subject because that's the point that's why you're doing a biology chemistry and physics but you can't do it in your other subjects mm. um so if you're doing a biology pgc you can do your subject knowledge in biology but you can't do the subject knowledge necessarily in chemistry or physics um and i find that very odd because they're, they're, it seems that there's no understanding that actually when you end up teaching in most secondary schools you end up teaching all three subjects to some degree yeah. Um, and so even at the beginning, you're sort of nobbled in that respect because you're doing a, a GCSE in your particular subject, but even though you're actually going to be teaching probably all three. Yeah, you get um, your timetable and it's, yeah, you've, you've got X amount of physics, you've got X amount of biology, you know, yeah. um, so it's it's kind of, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. I mean, when you're thinking about kind of inspiration, because our time is coming um, to an end soon, but I would like to ask you some recommendations. I don't know if you are kind of want to recommend some books or whether you want to recommend people you follow on social media through Twitter who are quite inspirational in science. Are there any people that you go to for kind of sciencey based content you think they're good to follow? Any any recommendations for the listeners? Well, I think there's so much out there and I think it's it's worth just getting on things like Twitter, for instance, and sort of networking and um, looking at who's following who and start picking and choosing who you might want to um, follow because there's some fantastic stuff out there. Um, I really like um, things like the teacher toolkit um, stuff. I think it's really good in terms of pedagogy for new teachers and there's some great stuff out there. Um, there's some really good chemistry people, case science and um, Jasper Green, who um, is the Ofsted um, science um, 
inspector at the moment. Um, Kirsty Turner, I quite like. And then you've got all the learned societies, so ASE, um, RSC, the IOP, the Royal Society of Biology, um, people like SAPS, if you're looking at plant science, because that's always something people struggle with. They've always got some great stuff out there. Um, and the ASC and CLEPS, um, I think, are really good people to follow in, just keeping up to date with good practice. And I think often um, some, of the, some teachers do rely on um, our technicians to look at things like CLEPS and health and safety, but actually they should be interacting with that firsthand to learn how to do things safely in terms of practical work and also what practicals are out there they could use. So there's a whole range of really great stuff and um, STEM Learning's websites, so the great resources on there. I think it's, um, and the exam boards, so I, um, I'm always going on to the exam boards to um, get worksheets and looking at the required practicals for trainees and using them a lot and showing them all the sort of three different um, required practicals from across the GCSE and um, the um, required practicals at A-level. So there's a huge amount out there. It's just sort of, I think, taking everything with a pinch of salt and making sure you don't get too overloaded with all the stuff that's out there because there's so many having, particularly running sessions for trainees, when you're looking at the research um, that underpins a lot of pedagogy. There's so many conflicting views. There's so many really good, um, interesting ideas. Um, and it's sometimes just realizing that sometimes you can only do so much and only look at so many different things. And if you find something that works really well with your particular students, then continue using it. Yeah, I was going to say, there are, there are so, so many good resources out there. And almost, I heard something yesterday and someone was saying, in theory, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be spending longer planning a lesson than it takes to deliver the lesson, which is yeah, very difficult yeah. when, you, when you're starting out. But, yeah. Uh, it's and that's like, what I say to our trainees, yeah, towards the end, it's sort of like, if the lesson's 50 minutes, then you've got an hour tops to plan it. Yeah. Um, because of course, at the beginning, they're taking sort of like two or three or four hours to do one lesson, like, that's not sustainable. Yes, definitely. That's a good, good tip to, to end on. Thank you so much for your time today, Simon. I really appreciate it and hearing no, your thank view you. in the lab. Um, uh, thank you. And perhaps we'll catch up again on another episode. Thank you very much for joining me. Great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. Hope Simon's words of wisdom have inspired you to start rattling those test tubes and switching on those microscopes again and kickstarting some engaging practicals. If you have any suggestions on who we should get on the podcast next, please feel free to email me at andy.woods at pearson.com. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you on the next one.